Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jews first, also to the Greeks. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let us pray. Excuse me. Good morning. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There are a couple of assumptions here. Um, in our day, in our culture, we, we cannot take these assumptions for granted. I cannot presume that we're all on the same page, and that we all share the same assumptions the Apostle Paul has in this verse. And so, before I bring out two points from this verse, I need to, to just draw our attention to two assumptions that Paul is, is leaning on in this verse. And I need to make sure that you have those assumptions. I need to make sure that you know those things are true, and therefore, this verse has meaning and makes sense. And so... The first assumption that we have in verse 16 is that people need to be saved. People need to be saved. It's no longer a given for many in our culture. There are many who, who do not believe in hell or in such a thing as right and wrong, good and evil. Sin. Some claim not even to believe in God or a day of judgment. Their consciences, the Bible tells us, speak to them of, of a God and a day of judgment to come. But, but that same Bible also says in this very chapter that they suppress this truth, that they try and, and deny that truth. And so we live in a time, in a place where there are many who if you go to them and say, dear friend, you need to be saved, their answer is going to be, saved from what? I don't feel like I need to be saved. My life's going okay. It's not perfect. But I'm doing all right. What do you mean I need to be saved? I don't feel like I'm in any danger. It's a good question to ask, actually. What is it? that all people need to be saved from. Verse 18, if you want to jump ahead a little bit, verse 18 gives us the answer of what all people need to be saved from. See verse 18? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So in verse 18, we, we have a God. We have an angry God. And why is He angry? 
He's angry at the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We can't say that he's angry because he's wicked, because this verse says just the opposite. It says that God is angry at us because we're wicked. And he is good. And so in Paul's mind, Paul's assumption is that all people, by nature, have the wrath of God being directed towards them. And what we need to be saved from is God's wrath. We need to be saved from God. Because of our sin. But if I'm witnessing to an unbelieving friend, maybe someone right here in Rocky Mount, they they might object. What do you mean I need to be saved from the wrath of God? I've lived 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. I've been a decent person. Sure, I've done some things wrong, but God hasn't struck me down yet. I don't feel like God is angry with me. I don't feel like the wrath of God is hanging over my head. That's how many feel. They don't believe in a God of wrath. They don't believe in a God who would cast people into hell. And so when Christians come and say, you need to be saved or you'll go to hell, they look at you like you're a fool. Like you're a backwoods something. Some Christians, because of this, have begun to change the gospel a little bit. They've begun to alter it so that it's a little more welcome in our day. Instead of saying that people need to be saved from the wrath of God, some preach that that people simply need to be saved from a, a lesser life. Come to Christ. He'll make your life better. Jesus will give you peace. Jesus will give you happiness. You can live to your maximum potential and have your best life now if you'll just come to Christ. There's a lot of things wrong with that gospel. You will not find a verse where Jesus says, Come to me and I'll make your life better. At least the way the world understands it. Rather, he promised his followers that if they followed him, they would suffer for his name. He promised his followers that they would know sickness and danger and turmoil. If we preach the Jesus will make your life better gospel, will make you healthy, will make you wealthy. It won't take long for people who come to that gospel to see that it's a fraud. And they'll turn away from that Christ just as quickly as they came to Him. Now, of course, Jesus does make your life better, doesn't He? But it's not in the way that the world expects. When we come to Christ, He he does inwardly cause joy and hope and peace to begin being developed within our hearts, slowly growing over time until it fills our souls as we enter heaven. But if we speak honestly and if we speak biblically, we have to say that through Christ, if you choose to follow Christ, this will not be your best life. Your best life is to come 
This isn't heaven, folks. We're on our way to heaven. And the Bible says that Jesus is going to bring his people through many trials and much suffering to fit them for heaven, just as he carried his cross, died, and then was raised to glory. So also we must carry our cross and die to ourselves before we will see glory. That is what it means to follow Christ. So a gospel that says, come to Jesus, and it'll make you smile all the time, is a lie. Yesterday, I I read an article about a Pakistani Christian who was recently attacked by the Taliban. He was working in his family's barber shop, and a group of Talibani men came in and began seeking to convert him to Islam. Just began preaching at him. Well, instead of listening quietly, as he had done in the past, he began to defend Christianity. He even quoted verses from the Bible. Very dangerous thing to do, particularly in Taliban-controlled areas of Pakistan. In return, they broke his left leg, they broke several of his ribs, and they left his left hand no longer functioning. Word spread that he had blasphemed Muhammad. It's interesting that Jesus was crucified on the charge of blasphemy. This man's picture was put up at Taliban checkpoints all over the area and was told that if, he was, if this man was identified, he was to be immediately arrested, perhaps killed. He was taken into hiding finally was able to flee the area after wearing a disguise to get out. His family's barbershop had to be closed and they are now living hand-to-mouth in poverty because they came to Christ. They would not believe a come to Jesus and He makes your life all happy gospel. The come to Jesus and He'll make your life better gospel is false and unbiblical. It is the come to Jesus and He'll save you from the wrath of God. He will reconcile you to God. He will give you God as your Father and God as your treasure. That is the true gospel. But the wrath part makes it seem so unpopular and so foolish in the eyes of our world. But friends, this is the gospel that saves. All people need to be saved from the wrath of God. That is Paul's assumption in this verse. Romans 1.16 makes no sense if you do not believe that all people by nature are born in sin, guilty because of Adam, and as soon as they get old enough to know what they're doing, they're going to sin, and God in His wrath is against them. If we do not believe this, this doesn't make sense. The gospel makes no sense. Jesus makes no sense. Do you share that assumption? Don't pick and choose what you believe in the Bible. You've got to believe this. It's all over. It's what Jesus taught. It's what the prophets taught. It's what the apostles taught. And God has graciously revealed it to us. 
we are to be like Jonah in Nineveh. God sent Jonah preaching to the Ninevites. God's judgment is coming. Repent. His wrath is on you. Repent. Perhaps He'll show mercy. God graciously sent Jonah to preach that gospel of salvation from the wrath of God. Well, so also God now has sent to all the peoples of the world, He is sending to all the peoples of the world this book and God's people. And we have been given a message to deliver and our message is not so different from Jonah's. God's judgment is coming. His wrath has been revealed against your sin. There is no hope apart from Christ. Repent and turn to Christ. Assumption one, all people need to be saved from the wrath of God. The other assumption that Paul has in this verse, you see if you are on the same page with Paul, is this. We do not have power to save ourselves. Assumption one, all people need to be saved. Assumption two, we cannot save ourselves. That's why he's going to talk about the power of God. Not what our culture loves to talk about, the power within ourselves. It is the power of God for salvation. It is implied that the power to escape the wrath of God is a power we cannot find within ourselves. We are incapable of that kind of power. What kind of power is needed for someone to be saved? Two kinds. One, we need the power to get rid of the sins that we've committed. And we need power to fundamentally change who we are. We need the power to somehow... If, 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 I, could, if I could get in a time machine, right? If I could get in my DeLorean and hit 88 miles per hour and go back in time, right, Jonathan? If I could go back in time and and could go back to my birth and could somehow find a way to keep myself from sinning, then there would be no sins between me and God. If I could somehow keep myself every moment from sinning. But folks, I don't have that power. It's impossible. And you don't have that power. Those sins are on your record and they continue to pile up and pile up and pile up and you can't do a thing about it. They're there. Crimes that must be paid for. And yet even if somehow, let me say this first, we we are like a criminal on death row who would do anything to be able to go back and change what he did, but he can't. The sentence has been cast and all he can do is sit and wait for judgment. That is the condition of us apart from Christ. But second, even if we could go back, somehow, even if I could get in a time machine and and go back and and change my life and keep myself from sinning and erase all those sins of my past, what's going to keep me from sinning again tomorrow? You see, the reason that I have committed these sins in the past is because there is something fundamentally flawed about me. I am not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner. 
I have a heart, the Bible tells me, that is deceitful and wicked. A heart that likes evil. A heart that promotes myself above God. A heart prone to self-centeredness, self-worship, deceit, manipulation, and indulging in every earthly pleasure. And that's what the Bible says about your heart, too, outside of Christ. And here's the honest reality. Try as we might to reform ourselves, to fix ourselves, to say, I know I've lived that way in the past. I know I, was, I committed those sins, but I'm going I'm to do better. I resolve to do better. I'm, I'm going to make sure I never sin again. You try that and see if you can do it. We can't. We cannot fix ourselves. If you're saying to yourselves, you know what, I'm going to try and get my life back straight and then come to Jesus, it'll never happen. Not only are we incapable of dealing with the sins we've already committed, we're incapable of diagnosing the problem within our heart and fixing the problem within our heart. Only the one who created our heart can fix it. And it needs more than just a little patch. It needs to be ripped out and replaced with a new heart. Only God can do that. So we have those two assumptions. We all need to be saved, and we're hopeless to do it on our own. Here's the glorious truths of verse 16. Number one, God is powerful enough to save us. The power of God for salvation. Our God is mighty to save. No matter how many sins you've committed, no matter how messed up your life is, no matter how badly defeated you are by your sin or how enslaved you are, God is mighty to save. Paul grew up in the Old Testament Scriptures. He knew them very well. He knew them with every fiber in his being that the power to save is found in God. He grew up learning about the Exodus, how God saved Israel from Egypt. Israel wasn't powerful enough to save themselves from Egyptian slavery. You remember when they came to the Red Sea? You get the, the water on this side and you've got Pharaoh and, the, and his army and the chariots and they're coming on this side. And here's Moses and he stood before the people of Israel and he said, Exodus 14, 13, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which He will work for you today. Not Israel, get ready. We can do this. Come on, let's pull up our strength. Let's turn. Let's, let's find a way to part the water ourselves. Or let's find a way to beat the, the Egyptians ourselves. No, no, no. It was stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. He saves. It was God who parted the waters. It was God who clogged the chariot wheels of the Egyptians. Israel would later sing, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The story of the Old Testament is the story of Israel time and again being incapable of saving themselves, but being rescued by the power of God. Remember how the word 
came to Judah that the Moabites were coming and the Ammonites were coming and the Meonites were coming. And Judah, they, they had an army, but they were no match for this, this massive horde of troops that was coming their way to attack them. What did King Jehoshaphat do? He saw it a couple weeks ago on Wednesday night, what he did. He gathered all the people in Jerusalem. But he did not give them some inspiring nationalistic speech about how you know, nothing can conquer the Israeli spirit, so let's go fight. He was very un-American in what he did. He did not pretend like the government was somehow going to save them. He did not pretend like the military was somehow going to save them. He did not declare that their own ingenuity or their own cunning was somehow going to save them. Rather, in honest humility, with all of Israel, all of Judah, gathered before him, he cried out to God, quote, We are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And God responded. As we saw a couple Wednesday nights ago, God worked in a mighty way, causing the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Meonites to turn on each other and to slay one another so that when Judah finally arrives at the battlefield, there's all their enemies dead at their feet. Just like the prophet had said, 2 Chronicles 20, 17, the prophet had said, See the salvation of the Lord. Friends, the entire Old Testament, indeed the whole Bible, has been graciously, lovingly given to us by God to call us to put our trust in Him and not in ourselves. Every historical story, every law, every song, poem, or proverb, every prophecy is given ultimately for this purpose, to beseech us, to plead with us, to stop acting like fools, to stop thinking we can save ourselves, and to turn our eyes to God and say, God, we are powerless, we do not know what to do, but we rest in you, save us. It's the whole point of the Bible. Salvation is of the Lord. His right arm is mighty to save. You and I do not have the power to go back in time and to change our sins. They're on the record. But there is one who has authority to forgive sins. There is one who sits on the judgment seat. There is the one who sent his son to bear the punishment our sins deserved so that he could declare us clean. We can't do that, but God can. Jesus Christ came. In order for us children of Adam to be acquitted, a second Adam, the first of a new humanity, had to come. Jesus, God's Son, came as that second Adam, and He lived the perfect life that our forefather Adam could not live. He lived the perfect life that you and I have failed to live. And then in order to redeem us from the punishment that the law demanded, Jesus bore the punishment due our sins on the cross. 
The wrath of God from which we need to be saved was poured out on Jesus. He endured an unseen agony as He cried out, My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? This was the cost of having our sins forgiven. And it was a cost only God Himself could pay. We were powerless. God had a way. Ephesians 1.7, Paul says this about Jesus. In Him we have redemption. Through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. Listen to this, consider it. Just as the first Adam fell and his sinfulness and his unrighteousness have been passed down to all of us, so now Jesus did not fall when tempted by the devil. But he lived in perfect obedience. And now, just as Adam's unrighteousness was spread to all of who are in Adam, so now all who are in Christ receive, partake of Christ's righteousness and his purity. In Adam, we were all guilty. But when we come to Christ and are united to Christ and are in Christ, his righteousness covers us and our sins are forgiven. Do you know this forgiveness? Is it a present reality in your life? But not only does God have the power to forgive our sins, thank the Lord for that, but not only does He have the power to forgive our sins, He doesn't even need a time machine, but not only does he, can He forgive our sins, He also is powerful to reach into our hearts and fundamentally change who we are. Through the preaching of the gospel, Jesus from his throne commands the Holy Spirit to break into people's lives and to radically change their hearts, removing their hearts of stone and replacing them with hearts of flesh that are sensitive and responsive to God's word. It's what we call being born again. We do not become immediately perfect But at the very base of who we are, our desires change so that we no longer have base desires for sin at the core of who we are, but we have a base desire for Christ and His glory. So, all people need to be saved. We are powerless to do so. God is powerful to save. Last point. God's saving power is given in the gospel. In the gospel. Verse 16, there it is. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, it, the gospel, it is the power of God for salvation. Everyone who believes. A cure does little good if it is not applied to the ailment. It is in the preaching of the gospel that God brings His cure to our ailment. It is in the preaching of the gospel that God fundamentally changes who we are, enabling us to believe on Christ so that we receive the forgiveness of sins and a new life. It is through the gospel and the gospel alone that God's saving power works. We see this played out again and again in the book of Acts, in church history, in our own experiences. This gospel is the message of Christ. 
It is in the gospel that we see the height of the glory of God. It is where his mercy and his justice, his love and his righteousness all come together at the cross. So much that shows our God as the glorious God he is, is There's this scene in the cartoon Aladdin. This is, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but in, in the cartoon Aladdin, there's this scene where, where the genie like, is huge, you know, this big blue genie, and he's like, ultimate cosmic power! And then all of a sudden he goes right down to his little lamp, and he says, in itty-bitty living space, right? Ultimate cosmic power in this itty-bitty lamp, right? So much of the ultimate glory of who God is, his righteousness, his justice, his love, his mercy, his grace, all of these beautiful things about him are compacted, tightly consolidated into one message. They're seen in all their glory at the cross. The message of Christ crucified is the glory of God consolidated into two words through which God saves souls which God opens eyes to who he is, causing them to fall out of love with sin, out of love with self, and in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. As the gospel is presented, when Christ chooses, the Spirit comes through that message and breaks hardened hearts and opens blind eyes and causes people to see the glory of God in the face of Christ so that they immediately love Him and desire Him. The moment they see that Christ is a powerful Savior, able to save them from hell, they throw themselves upon Him and become Christians. Their sins are now forgiven. Their feet are set on a new path a path that ends with them being made fully and perfectly holy in heaven. And the end result, mark this, the end result is God. The whole point of the gospel is to take us from being separated from God to being brought into His perfect presence as His children to have fellowship with Him and to commune with Him and to be cared for by Him and to be treasured by Him as we treasure Him forever and ever. The goal of the Gospel is to bring us to God. It's not mainly about heaven. It's not mainly about forgiveness of sins. It's not mainly about hell. All of that has to be taken care of so that we get to God. It's what David longed for with all his heart. Psalm 84, 2, David said, My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. That's how much David desired to be in the presence of God. And now through Christ, we've not been granted one day in the courts of God. We've not been granted a thousand days in the courts of God. We've been granted a million years in the courts of God. And that's the beginning. You see how glorious this is. Not only are we there, but we're not there just as his royal subjects. We're there as his dear children. Fellowship with God our Father is the goal of the gospel. And if we believe in Christ, God is given to us and we are given to God. He will be our God. We shall be his people forever. Justin, I hear what you're saying. 
Is this true of me? Are my sins forgiven? Have I been fundamentally changed from a slave to self to a a servant of Christ? Will I get the joy of living in the presence of God forever and ever? Is this for me? Dear friend, look at verse 16 again. What does it say? The gospel is the power of God for salvation. To who? Everyone who believes. The question that matters more than anything else is this. Are you a believer? Not just do you believe these facts, but do you believe them in such a way that your heart has now turned to Christ and you now rest in Christ and count on Him alone for salvation? Have you thrown yourself upon Christ as your only hope? Have you begun looking to Him day in and day out for His leadership and His guidance to teach you how to live well, trusting in Him every second? Jesus, how am I going to get out of this situation? Jesus, what do I need to do here? Have you learned what it is? Have you come to a place where you have, have you come to trust in Christ? To lean on Him. Have you begun to desire Him? Talking to Him in prayer. Letting Him commune with you through the Bible. Longing for the day that he'll come and take you to himself. This is what it means to be a believer. Are you a believer? Are you a Christian? Are you saved? The implication of this sermon is is easy and obvious. If you and I long to see people saved, we have only one message to share, and that's the gospel. Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church, let us love the gospel. Let us proclaim the gospel. If we want to see our family members and friends saved, we have little booklets with the gospel. We can give those out. We have Jesus videos. You can give those out. You can do phone calls. You can do emails. The best way is to sit one-on-one in a conversation and to share the gospel. You can bring people to church and let them hear the gospel. But the message that leads to salvation is the gospel. So let us get on our knees. Let us pray with all our might. God, Please work through the gospel to save so-and-so, and and then let's do everything we can to connect so-and-so with the gospel. Everything else is secondary. Everything else that we do here at this church is secondary to preaching the gospel to one another, to ourselves, and to the world. All right. Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church. Let us rejoice again in our great salvation. Let us ask Jesus to help us even more in seeing and taking opportunities to share the gospel with others. Let's love the gospel. Let's love the Savior that we know through the gospel. Let's pray.